welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This week, we have two featured guests joining us from the UK, Barb Jacobson and Jeff Crocker, and they're joining us to discuss the topic of subsistence UBI. So what is the appropriate level of basic income for a society, for an economy? Should it be enough to meet people's basic needs? When does it make sense for it to be more? When does it make sense to be less? That kind of thing. Some of us read an article from 2018 from The New Yorker entitled, Who Really Stands to Benefit from Universal Basic Income? We may or may not bring up quotes from that article as we discuss our topic. What I want to do is go around and get initial thoughts from our featured guests. And the question that I'm going to ask is, what is the problem that basic income solves? And how can we determine the appropriate payout amount? Go ahead, Barb. Right. Hi. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so I've been involved with the basic income movement since 2013 and quite a lot on the European level where there's always a big argument over whether a real basic income, whether that's something that people can live on without a job or is it can smaller amounts actually qualify as a basic income. Here in the UK, there's sort of two ways of tackling this the level of basic income, one is to sort of take the poverty rate, which is at about 156 pounds a week, and work back from that. Okay, so there's an interesting scheme that's being developed at the moment by a disability campaigner called Basic Income Plus, which should be interesting when they get that worked out. Or is it something that does it need to be revenue neutral? So the Citizens Basic Income Trust has been quite a proponent of it being revenue neutral. They think it would be simpler to implement that way. And that would be something on the order of the unemployment allowance at the moment, okay, what we call universal credit, which is around, the base rate is around 74 pounds a week, or at the moment, it's 94 pounds with the COVID crisis. So it's really, you know, I think the, the thing is really kind of how you approach it. I can see the point, like for the basic income movement to actually ask for a, or demand a higher rate or something that is enough to live on, just simply because you want to start the negotiation high. At the moment, though, I don't feel that we have the kind of power to be demanding very much, except that people actually look at the idea and also to back things like the emergency-based income or recovery-based income, as some people have done. I can also see the point, I mean, it has been said, I think a fellow at the University of Bath famously said in a paper that if basic income is too low, it's not worth it. And if it's too high, it's too expensive. And I actually take issue with both of those statements. <laughs> as somebody who has lived on welfare and also did 10 years of welfare rights advice, I met a lot of people who had absolutely nothing to live on. And I think I think the other thing that also gets missed in this debate sometimes, and certainly the debate with the left when people are wanting to preserve the welfare system as it exists and maybe uprate it. I think the thing that people miss when they look at the lower basic income schemes is how much the stability of income will mean to people. So for me, basic income is really a way particularly to solve income insecurity and also raise people out of absolute destitution, which is something I was in. And also I worked with many people who are in that. I can see why that would make quite a big difference. So I'm on the fence about this and I'm really interested to hear what Jeff has to say. Okay, well, just a few quick thoughts on a subsistence UBI. So I think this is a really good question, Alex. What is the problem that basic income solves and how can we determine the appropriate payment amount? Because I've tried to link those two parts of your question in this little table here. So it seems to me that it does depend on the objectives. So if the objective, which is, they're all valid objectives, okay, I subscribe to all of them. But if we have the objective to remove intrusion of means-tested welfare benefits, 
and achieve universality and unconditionality. Then a funding option of increasing tax, reducing other benefits and making a scheme revenue neutral, as Bob says, as the CBIT and the Compass Scheme roughly do. Then you will achieve those objectives and it will be revenue neutral. And in that sense, it may be rather non-contentious. If we want to move further and reduce inequality significantly, then we look at funding options like income tax, um, wealth tax, land tax. And my comment there is that income tax, I think, is still probably the most effective way of redistributing income from high earners through to a basic income fund. Uh, Wealth tax, I have some concerns about because I do think operationally it's difficult to tax a range of assets continuously. Actually, in most cases, a wealth tax becomes an income tax because it might use somebody's wealth to determine what tax they've got to pay. But usually that then gets paid out of their income stream unless they have to start selling assets. And if you have a very significant sale of assets, particularly if you're talking about private limited companies or um, PLC shares, there could be pretty chaotic result in the assets market, I think. A land tax, which many propose, is okay in the agricultural economy, but my comment there is that many of the most profitable internet companies today, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and so on, they use very little land and generate huge profits. So therefore, a land tax wouldn't incorporate, include their high levels of profitability. Eco-taxes, if we want to improve the ecology, which most of us would like to see, an eco-friendly basic income scheme, the problem is that an eco-tax is designed to cut out the pollution and therefore should be self-cancelling and not a long-term funding source for UBI. So if the objective, it's the one I'm interested in, is to correct a flawed structure in the economy where technology is reducing people's income inexorably over a long period of time, we want to deliver income assuming less work and also enable human flourishing and lifestyle choices. Then we need to look at sovereign money creation. So as Barb has given you some of these figures, some of the values derived from current parameters to give us some kind of benchmarks Yes, if we looked at minimum wage in the UK, these are all UK figures, of course, minimum wage of 1400 a month would cost 915 billion, nearly a trillion nationally. State pension levels of 759 would cost 482 million, universal credit 378 billion, and lowest full-time job out of ONS statistics at 133792 a month would cost 851 billion if those amounts became the amounts of a basic income paid universally to everybody. And just to give a comparable there, the 2017 total UK welfare spend was 264 billion. And in 2004, the UK additional household borrowing, which I claim was to supplement inadequate incomes, was an amount of 164 billion. So that you can see most of these schemes are costing at least twice the amount of the current total UK welfare spend. And here quickly is how that UK welfare spend is allocated to pensions, which is the biggest uh, slug of it, 42%. Disability, unemployment, interestingly, only 2 billion, only 1% of the spend, housing, families and personal support. And the admin cost is 2.3 billion, i.e., though it's a big figure, it's only 0.9% of the total spend. So it's actually quite efficient in terms of administration. So the claim that we'd save a lot of money by not being intrusive and not being means tested is not so strong. The other way of looking at it is top down in terms of conceptually. We look at subsistence UBI as a share of aggregate earned income. So 
as I've made the point before, if we had a fully automated economy, then 100% of the economy would be basic income. So say that 25% of the GDP is due to automation. That would give us a UBI total fund in the UK of 500 billion or 786 per month per person. So I just put those up as some sort of scoping ideas to get the discussion going. Thanks, Jeff. I'll share those slides in the podcast notes for any listeners out there. I like what you're getting at, Jeff. I like thinking about basic income as a solution to a fundamental flaw in the economy. Or as I like to say, the way we get people their money is broken and with a basic income, it won't be anymore. And we can look at the other problems that you listed on your slide, for example, intrusion and too much means testing and conditionality, also inequality and human flourishing and all that stuff. I think a lot of the problems that we see, a question we can ask is how many of the problems do we see in our society even the other reasons that people give for basic income, how many of those are caused by the fact that the way we get people their money is broken? Go ahead, Eddie. I really like the framing of that question. And I think that the problem that basic income really solves is that there is actually a positive feedback loop that runs an economy between labor income and consumer spending. So it begins with productivity growth, as Jeff talks about. And as labor income stagnates, it causes consumer spending to also stagnate, which continues to press down on labor income. And that positive feedback loop causes the economy to underutilize productive capacity within the economy. So if you look at capacity utilization from the 70s until now, we started off at about 90%. And every time we have a recession, it spikes down, it recovers, but it continues to trend downwards. And we're now at about 70%, which is close to where we were prior to the Great Depression. We have a few comments from a guy named Gronky Mug on the YouTube live stream. He says that eco tax is fine when CO2 is fully gone, we will all have ASI. I don't know what that is. I don't know what ASI stands for. Go ahead, Barb. I just wanted to respond a bit to the eco-tax idea. I know that it's been put around a lot and particularly with carbon taxes. And I actually share Jeff's feeling that tying basic income to something which we're hoping to decrease is really not a great idea. And also it just sort of gives us all a stake in the kinds of processes we want to stop to keep going. And I've sort of been conceiving of basic income the last few years. I first thought of it as just as a replacement for the hideous welfare system we have here. I know it's better than in the US. I am from the US. You can hear that in my voice, all right? But it's still quite bad and it's been getting worse over the last 10 years. So I thought about it as a way to replace that, but actually now I'm much more on the idea of, uh, that it should be a right, you know, and that it should actually be a kind of technological dividend. My dad worked for the US for, uh, as a scientist for his whole career basically in the military and uh, whenever he had a patent he got $250 and then the patent was generally just kind of given away to people like Polaroid or Bell Labs or whoever else you know was was in a position to commercially exploit it so I'm actually kind of viscerally aware of how much of our invention has actually come from the military or has been taxpayer funded and so I quite like the idea of a, of a kind of inheritance dividend Guy Standing also talks about the fact that the things that we benefit from now there were millions of people who went into those discoveries and to those into those inventions and because of that and it, and because you know the more the better we get at using technology the fewer people hopefully have to do at least certain kinds of work the more i think there is you know a real kind of case for a kind of inheritance or like a, a heritage dividend like like heinlein spoke about in his book i the, amongst the living something like that 
So the carbon tax is a really interesting topic or just resource taxes in general. We did one of these on resource conservation a few weeks ago. And the way I like to think about it is kind of in line with, with what Barb said, if the tax is working well and, and what Jeff said as well, if the tax is working well, then it's not actually a source of, of money for anything because people aren't generating very much carbon. But I like to think about a world that has a basic income that kind of fills in this gap that Jeff is talking about. Consumers need money in order to activate the full potential of the economy. Now, Jeff gave us numbers on on what the actual GDP is and what the gap is that you can kind of see out there. But we don't really know what potential GDP is for either the UK economy or, or any economy in the world. And instituting something like a basic income, giving everybody money to spend to activate any capacity that is available for them, that drastically changes uh, how much our economy can produce. So I talk about the natural level of basic income as being some hypothetical amount that activates the economy's full potential, which we can't know without actually, actually trying it out. But if you bring a carbon tax in, what that does is it taxes a particular resource. So it reduces the level of basic income we can afford to give everyone. We acknowledge that maybe we want to conserve this resource a little bit. Our entire economy, our entire society can be a little bit poorer because we don't want to overheat the planet and cause climate change and all that kind of stuff. Go ahead, Almas. Thanks, Alex. I think the discussion has been great um, already so far, even in the short time that's been going on. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that have already been said. I too really like the, the question that you started with. And the one thing I would, I think, add to what Jeff said, I, I agree that a basic income can help, um, you know, sort of correct a flaw in the way that the economy works. But I think that it can do that at the same time or through reducing inequality or through reducing economic insecurity, alleviating or, or eliminating poverty um, altogether. And I think that those things together, you know, do what you were saying, activating the economy economy's full potential by allowing people to um, participate, right? Um, in many of us now are talking about uh, basic income as a kind of um, infrastructure, right? Infrastructure spending is, is popular in the United States um, right now. So we talk about basic income as infrastructure for the family, for individuals to actually participate in the economy as well. And I think that the one thing that I would just like to either sort of point out to or, or just raise with Jeff and maybe ask him to address if he, if it, if you come to it, is um, this question of the wealth tax being difficult to implement. And I think that that's true, but I, wasn't that true about the income tax when the income tax was first implemented? Deciding what is income at a time when, at least in the United States, I know the history of income tax um, creation in the United States, you know, our country was still at least a 30% agricultural at that time. So many farmers didn't actually you know, have any reason to calculate what their income was before the income tax was implemented. So I, I see that, I, I'm concerned that's a little bit of a straw man with the wealth tax. Yes, it's going to take a while to actually figure out how to implement a wealth tax, but does that um, mean that we can't start with a small wealth tax and try to work out those problems as we go along? I don't disagree with the principle of a wealth tax. I mean, there is a wealth tax in the UK in terms of inheritance tax. It's 40% tax on uh, wealth passed between generations. But I do, I am bothered about, you know, the income tax thing, Amaz, is that uh, you do have a homogenous means of payment, i.e. money. And the problem with wealth is you don't have a homogenous definition of wealth. Um, so it may be the Quant family, for example, who own BMW. 
um, they're massively wealthy. Now, if that's to be taxed, let's assume they don't have any money in the bank, but which is probably not true, but um, and that their, their, their wealth is all in the ownership of BMW. Do they then sell off some of the factories? Does the state take control of some of those, those factories? Or if somebody else has got their wealth in terms of yachts, you know, some luxury yacht, does the state take a luxury yacht or do they have to sell the luxury yacht? Or do they somehow, um, is it in fact just a, a, a measure to require them to pay a higher income tax? I, I just think it's, um, I mean, I accept what you're saying, that it doesn't mean it can't be done. I think it seems to me massively difficult if you have a state agency that suddenly got, you know, um, a thousand yachts on its hands and a couple of car factories and all the rest of it, and unless somebody, unless people have to liquidate those assets. Alma says in the chat, at least in the US, firms figure out how to give their highest earners shares rather than income, which lowers their income tax bill. So I think uh, what Alma said before is right, that before we had an income tax, people were arguing about the complexity. What counts as income? You know, how do you even tell if a farmer, you know, what, what does it even mean to have income? And I think to some extent, this is a continuation of that problem. We implemented income tax, but then the fact that people can turn their income into all kinds of other different things really complicates it. And does that mean that the income tax is ineffective completely? No, I, I don't think so. But then the question we have to ask is just like we ask with basic income, what problem are we trying to solve with basic income? What problem are we trying to solve with income tax? What problem are we trying to solve with wealth tax? And do the two need to go together? Is a wealth tax going to increase the level of consumer spending that the economy can handle, for example? I don't really think of it as wealth tax. I think of it more as the difference between earned income tax versus unearned income tax. And I think the fact of the matter is over the last 40 years or so, um, the, the taxes on unearned income have actually gone down while the share, while the share that, that working people pay in taxes has actually gone up, right? So I think this has been a real problem, I think for the, you know, particularly for unions on the left that they've never really caught that, you know, and the kind of push for, you know, either to keep our job, you know, keep our jobs or, or raise wages or whatever. Um, you know, the, the fact that corporation taxes have gone from like 40% down to 20%, I'm sorry, my figures aren't quite right on this, but, but the point is, is that unearned income is actually taxed less than, than if you're working, all right, and, you know, and having, and actually dependent on that income, and I just, I find that a huge irony, all right, that, 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 you know, that, that people were always, you know, we're always faced in the basic income movement with people saying, well, nobody will work and da, 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 and, you know, what is, and, you know, and the fact that, you know, we want, if you want people to work, you would, you would think that they would tax work a lot less than they do. Yeah, it's a circle back to the topic, whether people will keep working or not, that depends a lot on the level of the UBI. So if we set the, the UBI to a million dollars a day, you know, people might still work on stuff because they want to work on stuff, but you're not going to have a labor market where people are paying people to spend their time doing some, well, actually, you're just going to have a lot of inflation until a million dollars a day isn't very much anymore. But, you know, uh, just kind of on its own, that creates a disruption in the economy. So the question is, what level of UBI is compatible with having a enough work incentive that the right amount of labor is being contributed in the economy to produce all the stuff we need to produce for the consumers that are out there. And that's kind of what I talk about when I talk about, it's another way of thinking about kind of the natural level of basic income. What's the level of basic income where once you reach that level, the markets can be efficient and we're not using the labor market. We're not using jobs as a tool for funneling money to consumers. 
the labor market is just a market for getting people to do things. And we're not overstimulating the financial sector, which is something Jeff talks about a lot, to create those jobs, right? And that has the side effect of asset bubbles and recessions from financial collapse and stuff like that. So I really do see, I agree with Jeff, that basic income is kind of like a missing component of the economy. It's a missing piece, as, as Almas was saying. It's kind of like a, a piece of infrastructure, a piece of basic infrastructure that, that we happen to be missing. And you know, Almas brought up the problem of inequality. A lot of us brought up the problem of inequality. But the question is, are these kinds of problems that we see a consequence of the fact that our economy is broken in this way? That's kind of a question we can ask. And as far as technology goes, I know Jeff was bringing up the idea, and this is what he talks about in his book uh, as well, by the way. I just held up the book to the camera for those people who are listening out there. But yeah, he talks about automation taking people's jobs and that creating kind of an income gap where people's income from labor is lower than what they need to spend to, to activate the full GDP. You know, a question we can ask is, is that, is that really, is the fact that people's incomes from jobs, that being lower, is that really a problem? Or is it calling attention to the fact that the labor market, an efficient labor market doesn't automatically provide consumers with enough income to buy everything the economy can produce? And automation and technological advancement, uh, more labor efficiency is calling attention to that. Go ahead, Barb. I just wanted to also then bring in um, the, the question of unpaid work, all right? You know, and the fact that unpaid work actually supports everybody in doing any kind of paid work. Um, in this country, uh, the government, I think it was the ONS came out with a figure last year that uh, one, 1.4 trillion pounds, uh, uh, there's 1.4 trillion pounds of unpaid work uh, going on in the economy, whether that's childcare. They also did, I have to say, they did include commuting in that, okay? Um, but, but the fact of the matter is that people do an awful lot of work outside, you know, outside the kind of formal economy and whether that's, you know, whether that's actually childcare or elder care, which is desperately needed, um, or whether that's, uh, you know, commuting or all the things you have to do to get yourself ready for a job. Uh, Guy Standing also talks about opportunity costs. If you're doing freelance, then you spend an awful lot of time trying to get work that eventually you'll get paid for. And then you spend an awful lot of time, I don't know anyone who's been a journalist here will know this, you spend a huge amount of time trying to get paid for that, that work that you've spent so long trying to get. You know, I've also been a fundraiser. And again, you know, you do sort of, you know, eight, you know, out of out of 10 funding applications, you know, I was quite, I was quite lucky in that about six of them would would then be you know, funded, but the usual the usual figure is around four. Okay, so four in ten out of fun, you know, out of all those funding applications, each of which took at least a week to do if they were substantial. Um, so, you know, I think we also have to keep in mind here: it's not just like the labor market, like what's it going to do to the labor market. It's also about supporting people in doing the work which they generally want to do, which is unpaid. That's a great point. I like to say that most of the important work that people do is not paid. And the labor market is only for when we need people to do something else. So if everybody was doing all of the work that society needed and that the economy needed and nobody was paying them uh, and it was all happening through social incentives or, or just desire to, to work on what you're working on, uh, then we wouldn't need to pay anyone any wages at all because you just uh, give people the basic income and they'd buy whatever the economy's, or, or maybe you wouldn't even need it. Maybe, I, I don't know, this is maybe too abstract to be, to be a realistic scenario. But yeah, the reason why we have a labor market is because sometimes you need to pay people to do something else. And then a question we can ask is, how much money do we need to withhold from people 
So you can start, well, if you start at zero, how much basic income can we pay people? If you start at, well, this is the level of consumer spending the economy could handle if it's producing everything it can produce. How much money do we need to withhold from people in order to create enough incentive for them to do the work that needs to be done? And my sense is that it's not all of it. You don't need to bring the basic income down to zero in order to get people to do the labor market work. You know, they're still doing the other important work that, that probably vastly exceeds the, the labor market work anyway. And we just don't measure it in pounds or dollars because it's not something that we're paying for. We don't need to pay for it. It's incredibly valuable, but you don't need to pay for it because people are doing it anyway. And then we can also ask the question, by forcing people to go and earn their money through the labor market and by creating jobs through that mechanism, by pulling them away from what they would otherwise be doing, are we actually making the economy less efficient and less productive? Because maybe they would have been doing something important. Maybe they would have been innovating something or all kinds of amazing things could have been accomplished by people if they're not forced to work at a gas station pumping gas or something like that. How many Einsteins and Mozarts are, are pumping gas? We don't really know. But we do know that historically speaking, most of the important innovations of humanity have come from people who had the resources to spend their time doing more of what they wanted. So the aristocracy or people who were patronized by the aristocracy. And those people were held up by slaves. But if we can, if technology can be our slaves, kind of getting back to, to Jeff's point of view, if technology can be our slaves, then maybe we can all be members of the aristocracy. And his, of course, most rich people might just sit around and do nothing, which is, you know, history won't remember them, right? And I'm sure they did back then too. But history remembers the people who, who did do something. And, and by freeing up people's time to spend it how they want, that gives an opportunity for doing something that really benefits people that you take away by forcing people to spend their time uh, in the labor market. So I want to get to the the first quote from the article here, a UBI, so this is a quote from Annie Lowry uh, initially, a UBI is a lesson and an ideal, not just an economic policy, Lowry writes. The ideal is that a society as a first priority should look out for its people's survival. The lesson is that possibly it can do so without unequal redistributive plans. Is that the ideal? Is that what we're trying to go for? Or if we just go for having an economy that works well enough to take care of people's survival, are we really reaching our full potential? And my sense is no, and that this is part of the danger of designing a UBI that merely brings us up to a subsistence level, is that we could have gone higher. People could have been potentially a lot better off, but we stopped there because we set this target. And I think that's how a lot of people, both basic income supporters and anyone who's kind of looking at uh, basic income critically from the outside, they think, oh, it's only supposed to be a small amount of money and not enough to get people to stop working, you know, that kind of thing. But I like to say that if basic income isn't causing people to stop working, then the basic income isn't high enough. Because right now we're using jobs in this really inefficient way to push money to people. And base, basic income means we don't have to do that anymore. We can kind of uncouple uh, people's labor income from their, their income that they use to, to buy goods and services. Or the basic income can, can kind of be the default way that people get their money. And then you just pay people extra if you need them to go spend their time working on something other than what they would ordinarily be working on. The way this conversation is turning also reminded me of David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, right? And the fact that, you know, there is a lot of, you know, I, what I'm kind of wondering about is what is, when you're talking about a consumer income, all right, then how do we decide? I mean, given that there's a whole lot of overproduction going on right now, or was going on anyway, before COVID, um, you know, and there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, junk, all right, that was being produced. You know, how do we, you know, one thing I would, I would think with basic income is not necessarily, 
whether this would would impact on the level or not, I don't know. But you know, the fact of the matter is that you know, if I, you know, certainly when I was when I was poorer, um, I, you know, I obviously cut back on my spending, but also I, I also figured out ways, you know, to help neighbors, and then they would help me, and you know, the sort of all that kind of gifting economy that that can happen, you know, in in the in the meantime, and you know, maybe there wouldn't be quite so much waste. You know, if you know, if, I don't know how this again, this consumer income would be would be set, but or where you where you set the productive capacity. I mean, if the productive capacity, if eighty percent of that is stuff that we don't need, then how does that how does that work? So yeah, a few a few things in there, but you know, I think we also need to decide, you know, like what what work is worth doing. And, yeah. you know, as you said before, I mean, you know, a lot of the most important work and certainly COVID has exposed this is unpaid, underpaid or insecure, you know, and, you know, how do we support people in being able to do the work that they're best at and, the, and which actually all of society would be able to share in? These are great questions. And the question of overproduction, if we're talking about junk, then it's not just overproduction that we're talking about. It's also a misallocation of production because we're yeah. producing stuff that people don't need. And the question is, why are we producing stuff that people don't need? Uh, and I think part of the answer is that we're trying to keep the economy going because we're using it. We're using jobs to get people money. I think that's certainly uh, part of the answer. So when you have uh, a basic income, um, you know, at a at a reasonably high level, at its you know natural calibrated level or something like that, um, then you're at a point where you're saying uh, we don't need to create jobs. Uh, now the economy can still be overusing resources at that point. Now it's not producing junk for the sake of producing junk, um, but maybe people have so much money that they're buying more than our, uh, our environment, our, our planet can really sustain or something like that. Uh, so then what you have to do is you have to start bringing in stuff like carbon tax or tax on any activity that you want less of, any kind of wasteful activity, and then you can, can bring it back down. But you don't have to worry about pushing people into poverty because everyone's still getting their basic income. The basic income might be lower, um, but you're making those calculations. You're not, uh, it's not this unstable thing where right now, today, if you contract the economy, then maybe a bunch of people lose their jobs. It's like a, a, you go from either having an income to not having an in income. And then a lot of people get screwed over. So everyone's afraid to do that. In a basic income world, you can shrink the economy and everyone's fine. Maybe we, we all get, get by with a little bit less, but it's not like suddenly um, there are people around you that are losing their livelihood. And then that causes a cascade reaction or something like that. Let's go to Alma's. I agree with what you're just saying, Alex, you know, I, one of the things that um, certainly in the US, probably in the UK as well, we're being told is, you know, even though we're all kind of living at home under, you know, quasi lockdowns because of COVID, we're all encouraged to, you know, spend money because we need to do that in order to make sure that our, you know, neighbors don't, you know, go into economic collapse because they're not getting income from our, our normal pur purchases. And some of that is fine, but some of it is wasteful, right? But I, you know, you're getting this message and I, and I feel it strongly, right? That I have to, because I, I did keep my job during this crisis that I have to keep spending at, you know, at something like the same rate, even if I don't really need to because of, you know, the circumstances that we're living in now. Um, but I also want to pick up on something you said earlier about, 
you know, the fact that if, um, if, the, if people don't quit work, the basic income isn't high enough. And I really like that as a, as a kind of an ideal. Um, yes, we should be empowering people to make different choices than the ones that they're being forced to make because they have to work in order to um, have enough money to live. But I, I wouldn't want that to keep us from um, approving a basic income that is smaller than that amount to begin with. Certainly in the US, we see that a lot of the um, social policies that we take for granted now and that are, you know, we think we're at a quite generous level started out very small. And rather than piloting a basic income, which is kind of all the rage now, implementing a small basic income um, is another way of showing people that, look, the sky is not going to fall when, you know, we give people a basic income. So I would say I agree with the kind of the ideal, as you expressed it, but I would um, say that we should, you know, Politically, practically, we should aim for a smaller basic income as long as it's universal, unconditional, um, and individual. And I believe that will grow over time. I agree with you 100%. And, and I think this relates to the quote that Barb gave before. Um, uh, if it's too low, it's not worth it. If it's too high, it's too expensive. I think you know any amount of basic income is better for people than no basic income. Right, uh, so we can start small and that's fine and we can gradually increase the amount. I generally agree also with your skepticism of these pilot programs. If you're piloting it with a small group, you're not testing basic income. Basic income is a policy that affects the whole economy. It's not, um, it's not something that, you know, you can see what people's behavior is when they get money, but we already know that. We already know people are better off when you hand them money, when they have more money, they're better off. In today's world, in today's economy, basic income changes that. It changes the world that we're living in. So you can't test it by, um, by doing a, a small subset of people. Um, so yeah, I, th I think a small basic income is good to start with. And, um, I think the people who are worried about it being too low are maybe afraid of uh, someone putting in a low basic income and pulling out um, everything else that we're doing, pulling out all the other all the other welfare programs. This is what what Barb was getting at before that people are afraid that 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 the welfare system is under attack. Um, and and to what you were saying about uh, encouraging people to spend money during COVID times and this whole tension of you know oh we can't um, shut down the economy too much because people will lose their jobs, you know, businesses will go out of business, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. In a basic income world, if people don't want to spend as much money, we just don't have to produce as much stuff. And it's not a problem. Nobody gets hurt because you're not spending money. If anything, uh, it, the less money that people spend, the more basic income we can afford to give them because it frees up space for more consumer spending in the economy. So the more people save their money, the more money we can, we can hand, we can hand uh, people collectively. Uh, and that helps the people who really do need to spend the money the most. So far, we got into a situation where work and wage have been used as the mechanism for, for life, essentially. You know, if you don't have a job, if you haven't got a wage, you're not a person, and you certainly haven't got an income, um, or you get some kind of social security income. But, but in my view, this has become exaggerated, and A, the technology is releasing us from, from that. And, you know, who wants to go back to the kind of manual grind that people had in uh, 18th century factories? I don't. Um, or the kind of grind that it was in the fields before we had Massey Ferguson tractors and all the rest of it. I mean, I'm pretty grateful for the level of modern technology, frankly, and therefore I want to take advantage of it. And the advantage is that, as you've been saying, we can, in fact, scale down the amount of output if we don't want to buy, you know, new set of clothes every year. We don't need to buy a new set of clothes every year. Uh, 
for example. So we can scale it back and yet still make sure that people have got income. And there's a lovely book I've just got halfway through, um, this one called Work, a history of how we, I can't read backwards, um, spend our time. <laughs> um, and by uh, James Sussman. Uh, it's very, very interesting because he points out that, you know, 95% of human existence, we haven't had this kind of um, work um, madness. I mean, you know, work's fine. I'm not against work, of course, and creative effort and um, so on and so forth. But uh, the idea that it is the kind of solvable to uh, human existence and to human income and to human creativity, you know, I mean, there, uh, it will need a new philosophy, of course, that um, um, I can do things in life without somebody needing, without my needing somebody to tell me what they should be. Now that does require a slightly different concept of human ontology, even there's some different philosophy of how I can organize my own life. But frankly, most of my friends who've retired are really happy, you know, they're just doing all sorts of creative stuff. Um, so I agree with you entirely. I mean, works there, productions there, but the production matrix has clearly changed. There's no doubt about that. It isn't that all jobs have gone. It isn't that robots are doing everything, but it is um, an inexorable creep, 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 year on year that more things are getting automated. Um, and uh, why resist it if it allows us to have um, a, a more flourishing choice of lifestyle? I, I, I wouldn't want to resist it, unless, of course, you know, it becomes malign. Then we've got to have some methods of socially stopping technologies that are malignant. Um, but, you know, those that are delivering stuff we need and stuff that we want, um, and we can do it and work becomes less of a core element or becomes more at our own discretion. You know, who wouldn't want to lead a life where you've got more discretion? I think most people would. The only reason why we'd want to force people to participate in the labor market is if we actually need something from them. And then there's a trade-off, right? Like uh, maybe employing someone, people to do a certain thing, maybe a public project or something provides some benefit, but then you also have to ask about the opportunity cost. You know, what is the cost of pulling people away from what they would otherwise be doing in order to get this thing done? Sometimes it might be worth it, but sometimes it might not. And we shouldn't, or it, it probably wouldn't be maximally beneficial to people to find work for them to do, even if that work is useful, unless you're doing that cost benefit calculation. Go ahead, Barb. I just wanted to explore just a little bit about how work, this whole idea, because another thing that we're always put, you know, oh, who will do the dirty jobs, all right? And I just think, first of all, that's somebody who's never spoken to somebody who does dirty jobs, all right? They're not all necessarily really horrible. And you get, you know, I remember a friend, um, she, she used to go caving a lot. And, uh, you know, she, while she was caving, she met, you know, she met some people who were sewer cleaners and they really loved it because they knew the city in a way that nobody else did. And they had, you know, they had huge camaraderie. You know, it's also the same that you get sometimes in a restaurant or doing other kinds of service work, you know. Um, and there's also, I mean, I think basic income would allow us to think about how we can share we can share out these social, socially, really socially necessary jobs in a, in a much more equitable way. You know, so again, that, that's not necessarily, this is, we kind of strayed away from the level question where I have anyway, <laughs> but you know, I mean, all this kind of work disincentive thing, I mean, most people really do want to contribute to their societies. And so, you know, I don't think, I don't, I don't think the work is really, you know, unless it's a huge basic income, and even if it was a huge basic income, I don't think it would be necessarily a work disincentive. 
in some sense, people's time is finite. Everyone spends 24 hours a day doing something with their time, right? And maybe to an external observer, some of that time is valuable, some of it's not. It's really hard to judge, though. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, we're worried that you put a basic income out there and then people will sit around playing video games and smoking pot. It's like, well, okay, some people might do that. All that does is that that only affects the level of basic income we can afford. If a very small amount of basic income caused a lot of people to do that, then maybe we couldn't afford very much basic income, right? But these are the kinds of things that actually go into determining what kind of the optimal level of basic income is for our economy. If people, as, as Barb is suggesting, which I tend to lean more towards, are at least collectively motivated to, to do all kinds of awesome stuff, even though any individual person might not be, I think the, the level of basic income we can afford is probably higher than what most people imagine. Let's go to another quote from the article. Although politically dissimilar people may support a UBI, the reasons for their support differ, and so do the ways they set the numbers. A rising group of thinkers on the left, including David Graeber and Nick Cernicek, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, tout a generous version of UBI both as a safety net and as a way to free people from lives spent rowing overmanaged corporate galleons. Business centrists and Silicon Valley types appreciate it as a way to manage industry side effects, such as low labor costs and the displacement of workers by apps and AI without impeding growth. Industry side effects. So they're, they're talking about low labor costs and displacement of workers by apps as bad things, right? Whereas if, if we're already thinking in a basic income mindset, then the less work that people have to do, the better. That frees up people's time. Go ahead, Bethany. I just wanted to comment on what you talked about before with what happens if we shoot for a subsistence level. And just to add, I think you said this a little bit, but just to add that one thing that can happen is people get concerned that it's worse than alternatives because they imagine, for example, if you prop up jobs that could be better paying, people could have a better quality of life. So you're like, they're, they're in their minds kind of trading off between subsistence level and like a much higher quality of life with a higher income. Um, and so that's a kind of rhetorical problem that I see come up sometimes if people are assuming are assuming that the basic income is going to be subsistence or is going to be kind of like capped at subsistence. Um, I still agree that it's any amount is better than none, but but if you frame if people think it's framed as like that's the highest it can go, then they're going to be concerned about that versus other policies that they imagine could do better for people, um, like propping up wages through jobs. So I want to bring that up. Yeah, if people think, you know, as Jeff and I do, that the reason for the basic income is to fix this fundamental flaw in the economy, then uh, a small amount can be framed as, well, we're trying the small amount to show you that, you know, a little bit helps, but, you know, the full amount would also kind of completely solve the problem. Um, whereas if you try to frame it in terms of poverty and survival and bringing everyone up to a minimum standard of living or something like that, that can raise alarm bells in people's heads and scare them that like, are we moving toward a future world? And Andrew Yang kind of played into this a little bit. Uh, the idea that we're moving into a future where robots are doing all the jobs and everyone has a very small basic income to barely survive, that kind of thing. So he kind of, kind of stoked those fears in people. Uh, go ahead, Barb. I just also wanted to pick up on an idea that, that I've been kind of touting, which is also the kind of symbolic value of basically, you know, if everybody's paid as, as the same amount, you know, what that actually does to people's, um, to how people feel invested in society and the people around them. I mean, the Finland study found that people trusted uh, others and also the government. Now, some people may have different views on whether that's a good thing or not, but, but that, you know, they basically trusted 
you know, they, they felt that they were more equal with, the, with everybody else. And another thing that, that, I mean, I thought was really interesting that came up in, in India last year um, was that the head of Sewa talked about how women who didn't think of their, their work, which their unpaid work, which helped their family survive in the informal sector, and actually, so it was actually economically uh, important, they didn't think of it as work until they got the basic income. So that's why I'm always sort of pushing this thing that, you know, there is so much work that goes on, which people don't get paid for at the moment. Um, and how important it is that everybody have a basic income, you know, just so that they can also feel included in the economy. Interesting question. To what extent does it make sense to pay people so they feel valued for what they're doing? Uh, and and part of me, part of my intuition is that this is a cultural phenomenon where we have this culture of work and we have this expectation that that people go out there and contribute and earn the earn their money in order to um, you know kind of earn a living in order to survive in order to kind of pull their own weight that kind of thing. And my sense is that this would be kind of mapping that culture back onto unpaid work, work that doesn't need to be paid in order to be incentivized. And my sense is that that's backwards, that we'd want to go the other way. We would want to say, oh, you're being paid to do something. Well, that's fine. You're being paid for it. We don't need to celebrate you. You're being paid. That's your reward, right? And you're not, you're not special. You're not, you know, like someone happened to be, maybe what you're doing wasn't interesting enough. So someone's paying you to do something else or something like that. I think it makes more sense and it's probably more efficient to go in that direction. Instead of having unpaid work and paying it and saying the money shows that you have value, going the other direction and saying that the paid work, the money that you get isn't what shows that you have value. That's just an incentive mechanism. Go ahead, Bethany. Yeah, so I wanted to say with you that I guess my ideal would be that people start to feel that they're valued as human beings, kind of independent of whether they work. Um, but I also think there could be something interesting going on in like the domestic setting, especially if you if you mostly have women doing unpaid work and their spouses maybe doing the paid work. And that's just that like there isn't the same flexibility, like they might depend then on their husband's money to do all sorts of things. And so you're not really as empowered in a very genuine kind of way. And I wonder if maybe part of that feeling is coming more from maybe even partly from just the fact that they now have autonomy and power and because of the culture we're in it kind of gets framed in terms of like my work has value but really it's that they actually do have a different status in terms of their actual power in the society um so so i guess i'm thinking you know that could be kind of the root of some of those feelings that then get just kind of articulated in however the culture is thinking about it at the time but that root seems very important um if everybody has some money they, they're just much much more empowered even even than an arrangement where you kind of depend on a domestic situation for for your your sort of fungible currency right i like that is it is it the money that gives you power and the work just happens to be your source of money and then we're kind of mapping the power onto the work uh go ahead barb i think those are great points bethany certainly in in wages for housework we were constantly up against the idea that that if you paid women for housework that 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 that, that would institutionalize them in the home i mean certainly our experience with child benefit which is like a basic you know which is about as close as, as anywhere has gotten to a basic income for children um you know that actually did empower and even though it was it it was very small um it really did empower women to you know leave violent partners or um, or even just partners who were boring or right? you know sometimes you just get fed up with each other you know um, and it, I mean it, so for us it was really important that women have their own money um, what we would get and it was generally for middle class women I'm, I have to say you know oh well this will institutionalize women in the home and we do get that in the basic income movement as well 
Um, but I have to say, you know, when we were out there for, for wages for housework, okay, the two responses we got from women were, all right, one was, where do I sign up? And then the other one was, how dare you, how dare you put a price on my love? All right. And I think, you know, I think in a way, like if we can do a basic income to everybody, it will also help men actually do a bit more of their share, um, which I'm sure you do, Alex, but you know, it's uh, okay. Uh, statistically, it's 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 pretty small, um, but also you know, and help women just decide you know where where they want to be with their lives and and who they want to spend them with. I think that's right, and I think most of the time, uh, if someone comes up to you offering money and you don't have to do anything, you'll either say uh, where do I sign up, or or you'll be offended. I imagine that that would like be the two most likely responses in any context, uh, not just the context of approaching women who are who are doing housework. Uh, go ahead, Alma. I want to pick up on Bethany's point and just let those of you who maybe don't know that the pilot, the basic income pilot that took place in one province in in India, where there was a there were villages that were you know tested. Some got basic income, some didn't. But in the test villages, they because they were small, because the the amount of the basic income in a place like uh, rural India you know could be small, they could give it to everybody. So all the households in the village, uh, the, the villages that were you know in the the um, uh, the treatment uh, group that got the basic income were eligible. And at first, um, the higher income households, um, typically led by men, would say, no, 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 we're, you know, we have enough money, we don't need this basic income. But the women in those households would come forward, because even though they didn't have any material wants, you know, they were not poor by the standard of their village, they had no money that they controlled. So there, you know, Bethany, it is a place where um, the basic income was not connected to the idea of work. It it was connected to the idea of voice within a, um, a family and within a relationship, even in the absence of any material want. I think that's a really good point. There's what you control. There's this freedom aspect of it. If you have money that you control, that's different from someone else buying everything for you. And that could be a husband who's controlling your household, or it could be a government who's saying, hey, we want to give you food stamps and you can't buy certain things, or we want to give you, you know, these other very specific benefits. And sometimes, you know, the most efficient thing the government can do is to provide a particular benefit for people. You know, they build roads and bridges. They're not going to give everyone, you know, $100 and say, you guys get together and figure out how to build your bridges, right? And I think similar for healthcare. There are certain things that it makes sense for the government to provide directly, but there are also certain things that it makes sense for the market to be able to provide. And kind of having this paternalistic control over what people have access to doesn't make sense, except in the cases where it's actually efficient to do that. So basic income enables that. It enables individuals, not just households, but it enables individuals to participate uh, freely in the market and buy the things they want. And I think this kind of, of course, relates to what Jeff is talking about, about fixing this flaw in the economy. I think anytime anyone talks about anything that basic income, any benefit that basic income provides, I like to, in my mind, reframe it, okay, what's the thing that's broken? And a lot of times it comes back well, the same thing is broken. We don't have an efficient mechanism for getting money to people. So people can, as individuals, benefit from what the economy provides them. So if you're doing it through a household and the women have to get the money through their husband, that's a less efficient alternative to basic income, right? You're creating inefficiency in order to force the money to, to go to people through these specific channels. And you only really would want to do that if you need to provide an incentive for something, if you want to create some outcome. But we have these cultural hangups on like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be, even if it's not providing some benefit. So Gronky Mug in the live stream 
says, we need to show that UBI helps the economy and not helps people survive. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I think the economy itself is a machine for promoting human prosperity, right? It produces things for, for the benefit of the people. So getting the economy working correctly is about supporting people's survival and beyond that, right? I think we have enough people in the world these days, and you know, the billions, billions of human population, that if we let people kind of go back into a hunter-gatherer type mode, we wouldn't have enough resources to feed everyone, right? And a lot of people would just die out. You know, that's no longer possible. We've increased our carrying capacity through some of the efficiencies we get through industrialization and the economy and trade and all of that. And we can't go back to, to where we were without killing a lot of people. So the economy is this machine that we need to keep people alive and to, to, maximize, to maximize their prosperity. And hopefully we won't have a Thomas Malthus situation and we don't, uh, empirically, we don't have a situation where we just expand to use all the resources we have available to us. That's not happening. I mean, obviously we have problems with climate change, but, but that particular thing is not happening and we can, we can get this under control. Let's go to another quote from the article. $6,000 a year is not a lot of money, but Hughes believes that a light padding is enough. He describes receiving his first big payout from Facebook. This is Chris Hughes, one of the founders of Facebook. He describes receiving his first big payout from Facebook, $100,000, and realizing that if he set aside 5% return each year, he could count on a lifelong annual income of at least $5,000, no matter what. It was a little, but it meant a lot. The further you get from subsistence, the easier it is to ask fundamental questions like, what do I want and how do I get it, he writes. The covetable entity that the Andover kids of his youth possessed wasn't actually wealth. Their crucial asset was the assurance of choice. So I certainly agree with the quote, the further you get from subsistence, the easier it is to ask you know, fundamental questions or, or make your own choices or have freedom, that kind of thing, right? It's a continuum. The, the richer you are, the more free you can be, the higher the basic income, you know, like there's, there's maybe some diminishing returns, like that first thousand dollars is going to be worth a lot more than the $100,000 you get or something like that in terms of your, in terms of your well-being. But it never stops completely. The, the further you are away from subsistence, the better off you are. So it's interesting that he says he believes a light padding is enough. So the question is enough for what? And I think for him, the idea is what he wants this payout to do, what he wants this basic income to do is to get people far enough that they have the opportunity to figure out how to succeed in the current system, right? So instead of viewing it as, well, this is how people get their money, he's kind of accepting that the economy is basically functioning correctly. It's just some people are left behind and we need to bring them up a little bit so they have that opportunity. And I think that view of basic income is going to limit what we're capable of doing. But he's also, unlike Jeff and myself, he's also thinking about, well, you have to pay for it using taxes and how much money can we really raise? And he's trying to be realistic about what the amount can be. And then he's trying to tell a story about why that amount is useful and good. On the YouTube live stream, Valerija Korosec, she says, in Slovenia, we will start a mother's trade union. It's not the pay for their love, but for their time. The value of their time can be easily measured on the market regarding other kinds of work. 
So I think this is still, it still has some of the same issues, which is why are we giving people money? Is it because they did something to deserve it or to earn it? Is basic income something we give people because people deserve, people earn some, some dessert or something like that? Or is it that we want people to be able to buy things and we care about people and we want them to get the benefit uh, that the economy can provide them? And I think if, you, if you're trying to say that basic income is payment for something, then that again limits what's possible. Go ahead, Bethany. I wanted to speak to that a little bit too, in the sense that I think it's really appealing when you imagine the person that you think does deserve the money, like, oh, this person's doing all this stuff and so they should get money. But then the the, the other part of that framing is what who, who then do you think should not get money? Like to really be consistent in that view, you have to say think like, okay, somebody should be homeless and starving or not have money or have less money, you know, because they're not doing anything. And what if they, if they, is it that they have to be able to do it and then they're not, and then that person, I want that person to be hungry or, you know, so, so I think maybe some people at least don't always think through the flip side of that, you know, as opposed to the you, when you're thinking of like people having to do something to justify the money. And that doesn't even get into actually figuring out who qualifies as, as many people here have talked about, like the challenge of that, like, like vetting people for whether they are able to work and then decided not to, and then they don't get money and then the other people do. And that's obviously really complicated to implement also. But yeah, I, I, I think the alternative view of, people deserve money for being people might be one that that somebody holds, even somebody who's advocating for something like paying people for their housework. Because because I think what happens is like you imagine that particular case and you really think that it, that, that person should have money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you think other people shouldn't. Does that make sense? I think that does make sense. I think people often do say these things together or, or, or some people say, um, you know, people deserve money because they're people and they deserve money because they're contributing in this way, that kind of thing. But I think it's useful to keep in mind that anytime we're rewarding people for something they do, we're punishing other people. By extension, we're punishing other people for not do, doing that thing. So the question is, do we really want to, how useful is it to put it in that kind of a framing? Go ahead, Barb. This is something that we certainly looked at. I mean, we didn't really look at it consciously, but I think it was kind of a question within Wages for Housework. And there ended up being a kind of split within Wages for Housework over again, like, <clears throat> are we going to use what, what some women called capitalist arguments, all right, that, that there was all this unpaid labor going on and this, you know, this needed, you know, this deserved to be paid, or are we going to say, right, we actually need the freedom to be able to decide ourselves, all right, how much work we do in any, in any particular sphere. And again, this kind of, I think this tension is always going to be there. Um, and it's always, you know, and on the one hand, it really does help the case to be able to say, look, you know, 1.4 trillion pounds, billion, 1.4 trillion pounds worth of, of unpaid labor is going into propping up the economy, all right, on the one hand, just as a justice thing, um, you know, but on the other hand, it's like, well, you don't want to quantify, you know, like the women who said, how dare you put a price on my love, I think also had a, had a reasonable point, all right, how dare you you know, say that I've got, you know, I'm doing this for anything other than, than my own, you know, my own love and volition, all right? So again, I'm, I'm very much hoping that a basic income will help kind of bridge that, all right? That we can both recognize the work that we do regardless of whether we get paid for it, um, but also, you know, that, that we also have the choices, all right? To be able to then branch out and, you know, do things that maybe we wouldn't have thought of or wouldn't have thought possible otherwise. I think that's exactly right. There are other ways to recognize work besides money. And if people are depending on 
recognition of work in order to survive, in order to get their money, then that creates this whole culture around money and work and money being, you know, what shows your value and that kind of thing. And that's the part that's toxic, right? You don't want, um, you don't necessarily want your society to be operating that way. Um, so basic income can help help get us away from that mindset. And uh, Valerija on the live stream says, mothers pay on top of UBI, of course. So this gets back to the question of the level of UBI, because if we're maximizing the UBI in terms of bringing consumers up to the point where they're able to activate the full economy, then in order to pay something like a mother's pay, you have to reduce the level of basic income, because if you, if you don't, then you're bringing consumers over the, the level of spending that the economy can handle. Uh, so there's a trade-off. So the question is, is it worth lowering the amount of the UBI in order to pay mothers? And then the question is, what problem are you trying to solve by paying mothers? Um, are there not enough people who are mothers? So you need to pay people to be mothers. Um, are there, um, you know, is there a problem where um, even in a world with basic income, uh, mothers are struggling uh, and it's worth making everybody a little bit poorer in order to boost mothers, like that trade-off is worth it or that kind of thing. So these are the kinds of questions you need to ask when we're talking about um, kind of maximizing the basic income. Anytime um, we activate resources for any other purpose or, or spend, spend, spend money to activate other resources or give, give people other sources of spending, you're taking away from, from the UBI. So that's the, that's the trade-off that you have to make. And obviously sometimes the trade-off is worth it and sometimes it's not. Uh, I'm not convinced that something like a, a mother's pay is necessarily going to make society better off. I, I imagine that it would make the mothers a little bit better off at the expense of everyone else. Maybe there's an imbalance there that needs to be balanced or something like that. But I would say it's so hard to think about these things in the abstract right now because we don't live in a world with basic income. If we lived in a world with basic income, we could take a look around and say, hey, what, what are the problems that remain? And what resources do we have available to solve these problems? Do we want to take some consumer spending power out of the market, free up some resources, and put those resources towards something else? Sometimes we will, and sometimes we won't. So unfortunately, Jeff had something come up at his house and he had to bow out. Uh, so we have one featured guest, everyone's staring at you, Barb. So I'm gonna go to another quote from the article. A thousand bucks handed to a multimillionaire means almost nothing, but it's significant for a middle income person and for a poor person, it could open up the world. So this is kind of what I was talking about before when I mentioned the diminishing kind of benefit of, of, of money as you get more each dollar, there's diminishing marginal returns there. And it's also important to realize that giving $1,000 to a multimillionaire, he's probably not gonna change anything about his behavior. He's not gonna start spending $1,000 more, right? Whereas giving $1,000 to a poor person is going to cause that person to probably spend a lot of money, especially if they didn't have any money before, right? Because now they can buy stuff. Um, so, so this is this is important because it kind of gets to the question of, well, why give basic income to rich people? And sometimes people say, well, they'd actually end up paying more in taxes than they would be getting back in basic income. So they end up paying into the system more than they get out. So it's fine or something like that. But it's also true that if you give money to rich people, it doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't change the amount of money we can afford to give to poor people if we're thinking in terms of how much consumer spending can the economy handle? Because giving $1,000 to Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos isn't going to reduce the amount of spending the economy can handle by $1,000. So I think that's something that's useful to keep in mind. I would just point again to the symbolic value of everybody getting the same. 
And it was, you know, as, as Almaz was talking about in the Indian experiment, that the women came forward, the, the, well, the women from wealthier families came forward for their basic income, even though it was quite a thing, you know, be, right before the experiment to look down on all of this, all right, well, this is just something for the poor people and we don't really need it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, this question of like, well, why do we give it to, you know, why do we give it to rich people? And again, it's a, you know, it, for me, it's, it's very much a token of, of their responsibility that they are citizens, all right, that they can't just float off on their tax haven islands and never think about the rest of the world ever, you know, um, and all right, you know, you can balance it out with taxes if you want, or you can use sovereign money as, as Jeff and you were talking about. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, that I think, you know, and I, I think of my state where we have huge income inequalities, we have people who are on welfare, up to people who bought their flats for nearly a million pounds, right? And I'd like to think that you know those who you know so-called didn't need it uh, would then you know would then use their money to to pool in our community. And I think that would actually happen. I mean, and certainly you know we as mothers on income support we did pool the work. All right, that's for sure um, because we all knew you know and and I. I I certainly, if I didn't need the money, I mean, I certainly need the money right now, but if I didn't need the money, I certainly would be, you know, pulling resources. And I, that's also what we saw in India as well, was that um, the communities, a lot of the communities did pool their resources, you know, to create better ones, whether that was sanitation or whether that was a fish pond um, that they held in common or whatever. And I think, you know, especially in an era where, um, or in a place like London where, um, you know, where property prices have been going through the roof and et cetera, et cetera, you know, sort of enabling people to actually, you know, get together and do stuff for themselves, I think is, you know, would be a really good thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, if people have access to extra money and they can collectively get together and pay for more of the things they want, that's fantastic. In terms of the level of society as a whole, if people don't pool their money and they just decide to save it and not spend it or something like that, that creates an opportunity for the government to, to spend more money. Because if you're not spending your money, it's as if that money doesn't exist in the economy. If I, if I accumulate $10 billion and just put it in a pile over there, that money is gone unless I decide to dip into it or something like that. So saving money in aggregate at kind of the macro level gives an opportunity for higher basic income. And then at the level of the community or uh, you know, the level of the city or something like that, uh, people pooling their money, um, maybe they can get their desired objectives. And that, of course, would maybe use up the resources that would have maybe otherwise gone to a higher basic income, but it's okay because they're, they're doing things that benefit themselves, that kind of thing. But I don't think we need to expect people to pool their money. I don't think we need to tell a story about how you give people money and then they'll do responsible things with it. If anything, that again, affects the level of basic income that the economy can sustain. If people are wasting money and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and then wasting their time and not working, then it's not, not much basic income uh, we can afford. Uh, but my sense is, is that it's a lot. And you mentioned the, the sovereign money thing. And I just, now that Jeff isn't here, I can talk uh, behind his back and he can listen to this later. But I actually disagree with Jeff about how sovereign money works. I would say that sovereign money is just another way of saying deficit spending. The government is spending more money into the economy than they're taking in through taxes. So he talks about the government just issuing new sovereign money without there being debt associated with it or something like that. I don't really, uh, it's the same as normal. It all shakes out in the end the same way as normal deficit spending. But again, I mean, deficit spending is just spending extra money into the economy. So the question is, what can the economy handle? And people do need a source of money. Conventionally, we expect 
the money to come from the economy. So people spend their money in the economy and then it kind of circulates and cycles back through jobs to the consumers again. So people get their money internally, whereas something like a basic income coming from the government issuing new money would just be, well, the source of money is coming from the government now and people don't have to get their money internally. It can just kind of accumulate in the economy. That's maybe a, a little bit of a tangent, but you, you mentioned sovereign money there. Go ahead, Bethany. As someone who does work in psychology, I just wanted to underscore what I thought Barb was highlighting nicely, which is people initially in India, it sounds like, didn't want the money because it was associated with being lower class. And so one thing that is beneficial about it going to everyone is it doesn't have that stigma or that association. Instead, it has more of the association Barb was talking about where it's just a right of citizenship, something that everybody gets. So in addition to avoiding like means testing and stuff, you also have that that mentality, which which means that you avoid kind of the social costs of of stigma um, or being of marking some people as needing it and other people as not needing it. And I think that also can help pragmatically with support for the policy as well. It doesn't ever feel to someone like it's something that they're having to give up for and somebody else gets it or some, something like that, um, which those policies tend to, my vague sense is they tend to be more fragile and difficult to sustain. That's not my expertise, but that's my sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And then we can ask the question, what's the difference between how people think about basic income in the abstract versus if you come up to them and offer them free money, are they going to say no? Uh, and my sense is that the answer to these two questions is, is very different. Uh, go ahead, Barb. Just a couple things. I mean, I, I'm interested, I, I'd be interested in seeing what, I'll have to read your stuff, Alex, because I, I, I'm kind of a little bit confused about how you would make those calculations. Um, but but one thing that I mean, we were there was uh, the Work and Pensions Committee today this morning was talking about basic income, um, and one thing that didn't really come up was the cost of not having it, uh, which I was kind of disappointed. I mean, they had several experts. I mean, there was pro and anti people, but um, there was no kind of yeah. There, there, I don't think anybody's done like proper work on the cost of not having basic income. I know Scott Santens has written an article. I've tried to sort of make a stab at it a few years ago in a short article. Um, but you know, the fact you know that solving if you solve not so much for inequality, but if you solve for insecurity, I think that will make a huge difference, all right, to other costs, not you know, knock-on costs in terms of whether that's you know simply health or you know, actual hospitalization through accidents, or whether that's through social care or social work or prison. Um, and the other thing I also wanted to raise here, um, this is slightly, slightly off topic here, but, but also food security. I mean, I think that's becoming a big issue, obviously, with COVID, um, but not just at the consumer end, but also at the production end. You know, um, we, we had in Europe, we had an idea for, um, for an agricultural basic income to replace the um, common agricultural policy, um, just as a way to make sure that you know, that all agricultural workers, you know, and anybody who worked on the land were supported properly and that farmers actually knew what kind of income that they would get in order, you know, so that they could actually invest resources into their land. That's also what we found, you know, in the, in the Indian pilot was that when people had, they knew that the money was coming in, they were actually able to use the resources around them much better. And in, you know, in ways that were not just profitable to them, but also often profitable to their communities. So, Again, I just, you know, I wish somebody would, an economist would actually do much more work on the cost of not having basic income. Cause I know that, you know, we always get accused of being, oh, this is a panacea, you know, you're just talking about it as a panacea, but I would flip that, all right? And you were always denying, oh no, it's not a panacea. We know there are other problems that need to be solved. But, but I mean, I think the thing is, you know, so many of our societal problems have their root in 
people's, you know, individuals lack of a secure income that, you know, I actually, I have no problem calling it a panacea, okay, <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I know there are other things that need to get, you know, to get done in society, but, but this lack of a secure income, I think is really key. And it's really key to the kind of, you know, fascism that we see rising in Europe and the Trumpism that we're hopefully gonna get, you know, get over soon, or maybe not. I don't, you know, we've still got two months to go before inauguration. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, those sorts of things, you know, there was a woman and I'm sorry, I forget her name, but I mean, she made a, she was from Eastern Europe and she made a brilliant case, all right, that actually, you know, particularly the left has really focused too much on inequality and not enough on insecurity and that we're not going to solve those problems you know we're not going to solve a lot of these problems all right until we actually solve for insecurity and that can be through basic income also through health services and other you know other forms of services i'm certainly not arguing that it should replace everything i actually wrote a blog post a couple of years ago entitled inequality is not the problem where i, I made made some of those points is basic income a panacea i think basic income solves a really really important problem in our economy or rather the lack of an efficient mechanism to get money to people is a really really important problem in our economy and i think if we had a basic income a lot of people would be surprised about how many of our other problems are caused by this problem, by, the, by this deficiency. Now, there are important problems that basic income doesn't solve, that's true. So it's not a panacea in terms of the fact that it solves everything, but it's certainly a really, really big deal. And I like that you brought up the cost of not having a basic income. Something that I like to say is that not having a basic income is more expensive than having a basic income, right? And in terms of the cost in numbers, in terms of money, I don't know if that's even something you could realistically estimate or measure or anything like that. But certainly we can look around and say, what are we doing instead of basic income? The cost of basic income, like the economy needs a mechanism to get money to consumers and we don't have a basic income. So what are we doing instead? And if you take a look around, you see that we're overstimulating the financial sector to create jobs in the private sector, get businesses to hire more people, that kind of thing, as a way of propping up consumer spending. Meanwhile, some people get left behind by that system because not everyone's going to get a job. And you've created financial sector instability. This is why we have a business cycle. The cost of basic income is that we end up with a business cycle and we end up with people who are poor even during the boom times, right? Like these are the costs of not having a basic income. Go ahead, Bethany. Hey, uh, I just wanted to say that I appreciate Barb bringing up insecurity because it's something I haven't thought as much about as just the basic level of money that somebody is getting, um, but also just the unpredictability of it. But now that she brings that up, I can see that that would have kind of its own set of problems um, that are even in, above and beyond kind of maybe the, the level of money that you have in terms of, and, and I know I have read some work on how it just costs more to not have money. And part of that's the predictability, like not being able to plan or invest in ways that then, that then make things more efficient down the road. So I appreciate her bringing, bringing attention to that. I hadn't thought about that as much. That's a really good point. There's a difference between having uh, unpredictable volatile income and getting the same amount uh, at regular intervals. Dwight said in the chat, what benchmark does one use as a benchmark to evaluate its success, the success of basic income? So for me, my benchmark is that you keep increasing the basic income until the financial sector is reined into a level where it's only being used to fund productive investment in building capacity. So right now we've got this bloated financial sector that we're, that money is kind of leaking out the side to get to consumers. But meanwhile, you've got these asset bubbles and stuff like that. You know, you've kind of got basic income without changing any other fiscal policy. You know, you've got basic income to kind of the optimal level for the economy once the financial sector is under control. Then once you get to that point, you can ask what other changes to fiscal policy can we make? Maybe a higher basic income 
income is worth using fewer resources on something else, or maybe it's worth having a lower basic income in order to conserve resources uh, in general, that kind of thing. So that's the kind of stuff I would look at. So we have a comment on the YouTube live stream. So Valerija says, three-dimensional UBI model, universal basic work, short of working week and motherhood counts towards working, plus universal basic services, health, shelter, school, plus UBI. Or maybe she's including UBI as one of the universal basic services. And that is exactly what I would do as well. I would say there are lots of things the government needs to do for people. There are lots of services the government needs to provide for people. And basic income is one of those services. The government provides that for people so they can have access to the market so they can have access to the economy. And in terms of universal basic jobs, I mean, the question is, do people need jobs or are we hiring people to get them to do stuff? And that's kind of what I was getting at before with the efficient labor market. And I usually like to say people need money, not jobs. Culturally speaking, people create identities around jobs, but that's partly because we have this economy that works the way it does. And if the economy changes, then the culture around it can change too. I don't want to minimize the difficulty of that cultural transition. I think that's going to be really hard. And I also think that it can be useful. One of the services that the government provides can be to provide activities for people to spend their time in meaningful ways. Now, would the government be paying people to do those activities? Um, I don't think that necessarily makes sense. Maybe it would even go in the other direction. Or maybe, you know, if you have a bunch of bored people out there who don't have jobs, that creates a whole bunch of demand in the economy. Now, if you're someone who wants to create some kind of fun new thing for people to do, you can sell your, your trampoline park or whatever it is to all these people who are sitting around uh, with money to spend, who are, who are feeling bored because they don't have a job, that kind of thing. I, I'm really glad that you talked about it like that because often both the job guarantee and basic services are kind of, you know, put in opposition to basic income. And I think it's really important to not see it that way. You know, there might be something, you know, I think it'll take a while for people to evolve with this. And, you know, there will be people who kind of do need somebody to let them know what needs to be done somewhere, you know, hopefully, you know, people will find their own agency in the end. But yeah, and also just a shout out to Valeria. It's Valeria Koroshek. I've, I've worked with her in Europe quite a lot. So I'm really happy that she's on the call. Um, but I just, yeah, I mean, I think, again, you know, if we can get to a you know, I, I think it has to be maybe not completely up to subsistence levels or to get back to the level question. Um, but it does have to be fairly substantial, you know, so it is something that you look forward to. In fact, one of the um, very early works on basic income in the UK uh, was by, oh gosh, Juliet Reese something anyway, and she and she called her book something to look forward to, you know, because she was proposing instead of the welfare state that we got after um, after the after World War Two here, she was proposing that that go into a, a citizen's dividend or a citizen's allowance. So um, again, I would really, really emphasize that, that, you know, if we can start somewhere, I think that would be, you know, we really deep need, we do need to do that. And whether it's paid for by taxes, I can't quite see the sovereign money thing or your, you know, sort of dealing with the, this, this um, uh, consumer, consumer monetary theory. I mean, I'm not, that's, that's going to be another leap, hopefully. All right. But but, you know, if we have to still argue, you know, argue for it in terms of taxes and all the rest of it, I think there's a, you know, obviously there's a, a massive pot of unearned income out there, all right, which is going into tax havens, which is going into um, share buybacks and Lord knows what people, you know, what people end up doing with it on the stock market or whatever. 
um, you know, which really, you know, and at, which has not, you know, helped utilize people's talents and the resources in a, in a very good way. And I think, you know, I think basic income would like help us actually think about those things in a better way. You know, there's a way that I, I did spend some time in the, in, in the monetary reform movement before I, I started with basic income. Um, and I have to say that, it, that actually basic income has actually enabled people to talk, you know, like I can talk about basic income and, and the banks will come up, all right, or the tax system will come up or the, the kinds of things that like when I was taught, when I was purely talking about banking reform, uh, people's eyes just glazed over and they just couldn't quite, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a expert and I don't know anything about this and this all seems too complicated. But it's like, you know, when people could imagine the money in their pocket, then it was like, oh, right, I get something out of this. Let's try to figure out how it works, okay? <laughs> you know, and all the other things that might flow from it, you know. So I, I very much, you know, I've enjoyed being part of this movement, you know, as much for the other kind of side conversations, which don't necessarily have to do with basic income specifically, that basic income enables. Um, and the kind of freedom that it then, you know, it's like, oh, money in my pocket, that would be, that would be great. Okay, let's figure out how we can work this out and what other problems that need to be solved along the way. So, I, you know, that's yeah. that would be my pitch for it. Um, and again, you know, as long as it's substantial, I, you know, substantial enough that you would actually look forward to it, you know, then I, you know, I think, I think we can, you know, we can, we can work on the levels and, you know, as I say, it's sort of, it's also, I mean, I used to say to David, you know, well, you know, it's going to be, as you say, it's going to be a negotiation. And so maybe, you know, if our movement becomes powerful enough, maybe we should start very high because we know we're going to get knocked down. That could be, that could be a thing as well. Um, but I don't think we're quite at that stage yet. So, you know, arguing for it is, you know, for, especially for people who are not, uh, you know, are worried about, you know, the changes in society and things moving too fast and all that sort of thing. I mean, I think, you know, I do see the, also the benefit in, in presenting it the way Malcolm Tory does, which is, oh, well, this is just a little small change to our benefit system, right? It's revenue neutral, it's all okay, you know? Nothing's really gonna change too much, except we're gonna be giving you money for not doing anything, okay? <laughs> you know? Which is actually quite a huge change. Minor detail, yeah. Yeah, just a minor detail there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, and I can see, you know, I, I asked this question at one time when I was speaking, uh, I think to some students who were also working, you know, for their thing and, and usually, you know, on the left, you know, like 70 pounds or 80 pounds a week is kind of poo-pooed as, oh, well, that's not enough to live on and da 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 da. And I just put it to them, well, would that be of use to, you know, an extra 70 or 80 pounds a week? And actually, and then they came up with all these things that they could do with it. like. They could use public transport to see their friends rather than walking okay <laughs> or you know they could buy better food or they could you know have a long you know they could actually buy internet access at home rather than having to go into university all the time and again that's kind of a moot question right now but you know it's there's always something and if you can count on it i think again the, the insecurity question i think is something that we really have to you know deal with in an emergency type of way. I mean, it's not, again, it's not just about COVID. This, the, all these problems, you know, they've been going on long before this crisis came up, um, you know, in terms of people's insecurity and the way that makes them turn in on themselves. And it's, and it's I don't think it's so much poverty, you know, like there's a, there's a basic income meme where they talk about how poverty 
makes you stupid and all this sort of thing. And I just, I actually, I mean, I have to say some of the smartest people that I've ever known grew up in poverty, all right? And it's because, you know, they had the wit to get through it and, you know, often went on to do great things. Um, it's not about the poverty. It's actually, I really do believe it's about the insecurity. It's, it's not knowing, and it's not just like the insecurity of whether the money's coming in, because like when I was on welfare, it was also the insecurity I was, was like, oh, well, if I do that, then they'll think that I can do this. And so therefore they're gonna make me get a job. All right, yeah. and it was really something that I didn't wanna do. And I know people with disability, you know, disabled people have that question as well in this country. If they do any volunteer work, that also came up this morning, actually, you know, if they do any volunteer work, then the welfare, you know, then the uh, people who run the welfare system will think, oh, well, you can, you know, you can work. All right. So therefore, you don't need this disability, which they actually do need. All right. So, you know, again, like a basic income, um, again, with, you know, disability for extra, you know, extra needs and that sort of thing on top, I think, you know, would be the way to go. I like that you're emphasizing insecurity in addition to poverty. And I'll do my little flip thing again, where I'll say that if we don't have an efficient way to get people money, it results in both insecurity and poverty, right? Yeah. So you've got you've kind of got both problems that stem from, from this one deficit in the economy. And I like what you said about getting people to imagine receiving the basic income, and that makes it interesting to them, right? If you're talking about it in abstract terms and you're talking about economics and banking and stuff like that, you know, like, as you said, people's eyes might glaze over. For me, when I first encountered the idea of basic income or first kind of thought about it, I kind of came from the other direction, which is that I realized that it was possible to give everyone free money and that it would, it would just work. It would be compatible with the economy. And then the question was, well, why wouldn't we do that? Right. So I kind of I kind of have a little bit of a different different angle in, in approaching how to think about basic income. So there's an interesting discussion about universal basic services going on on the YouTube live stream right now. So Valeria Koroshek. So I'm sorry about mispronouncing your name earlier, Valeria. So there's questions about federal job guarantee on here. And Gronky Mug is asking, but what's the point of universal basic services if you give a good UBI? And I think the answer is kind of what I was alluding to before, which is that some resources are most efficiently allocated by the government directly. Some resources are most efficiently allocated by the market. And there are a lot of services the government needs to provide. We might not use the term universal basic services to describe them, but you know, military is an example of a service that the government provides for its citizens. And healthcare, other infrastructure, Structure like physical infrastructure, education. There's all kinds of things that the government provides. And if we want to, we can use the term universal basic services as an umbrella to describe these things, these um, services that the government provides for the benefit of everyone. And then basic income, as I was saying before, can be seen as one of these services. It's one of the services that the government provides, and it's what allows us to activate the market efficiently. So when it's not the most efficient thing to do for the government to allocate resources, everything that's left goes to the market, but the government still has to activate the market by giving people money, either through basic income or indirectly through overstimulating the financial sector and creating jobs and that kind of thing. Either way, the government is giving everyone money. The question is whether you're kind of hiding it behind all this really inefficient and stuff. And when I say everyone, obviously today it's not everyone. They're giving money to the economy and it's not getting to everyone. And it's really unstable and inefficient. We can have a debate all day about what things the government should provide and what things the government shouldn't provide, right? They're having a little bit of that debate uh, on the live stream. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that that's the debate to have. You have 
government spending on various things for the people and you have government spending on basic income and then what are the trade-offs between government spending on something specific versus leaving resources to the market to be allocated we've had this debate for a long time now in the uk about basic services versus basic income and unfortunately like universal basic services that was a term that department of ucl because it came up with as a you know this will be better than basic income right and so you know my i mean i, I really think we do need both but on the other hand, okay, because given the relative simplicity of basic income and the fact that, you know, again, so many of our societal problems are because people don't have secure access, you know, secure and regular access to money, um, I would say that basic income has to come first. You know, we can jiggle with the level or whatever, depending on, you know, but we will also will see which services we really want and we'll, what we really want the government to provide. I mean, maybe it would be that people would rather say get together to school their own kids in a particular community rather than you know rather than the state paying for that um but we certainly need things like roads and transport and other sort of large you know large in infrastructure paid paid collectively um there's been a kind of you know there's there's this kind of thing that some some on the left are saying that well basic services are are more collective all right than than basic income is too individualistic and it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I feel. I mean, I just don't, I really don't feel that, um, you know, a lot of the services certainly don't feel collective, all right? You certainly don't, you know, even though we have free healthcare in this, in this country, you don't go into a hospital feeling like you're, you know, you're in a collective enterprise there, okay? <laughs> you know, you want somebody to diagnose whatever it is that you've gone in there for, and you, you know, hopefully work with them to, to sort it out, but it's not actually, you know, it doesn't feel like a collective thing, or unless you actually, you know, unless you're very into, like, getting involved with the school, uh, you know, I guess in the U.S. it's called a PTA, or at the school board, um, or the school, you know, the board of governors in this, in this country, um, you know, unless you're like super involved and you've got the time and, you know, capacity to actually get involved at that level, it really, you know, when you're in, whether you're a student in school or whether you're a teacher um, or whether you're a person outside of, you know, society, you know, outside of the school system, you know, thinking, well, I'm a single person, I don't use the school, so why should I pay for them? Um, you know, it's still, it doesn't, you know, or somebody who says, well, I'm a single person and I can see the value in, in collect, you know, in, in state education, you still, you know, it doesn't feel like a collective enterprise, all right? This is really not something that people have necessarily got together. You know, and I think there's, and what they've, they've come out, the RSA has come out with a poll recently, which suggests that, that this basic services idea has uh, something like 14% support um, in a, amongst you know amongst their representative sample whereas basic income had something like 42 percent support um and i think that really shows you you know how people again they're yearning for security they're yearning you know to be able to have some freedom you know i mean most people are working you know two or three jobs just to get by and often that's not even you know covering covering their expenses and so you know they're worried much more about like how am i going to pay rent how am i going to put food on the table than they are about whether somebody has a Jaguar down the road. Now, maybe that, you know, that's much more apparent to me here in London where we, we live chocolate next to each other and, you know, you can have somebody who's very wealthy living right next to somebody who's on welfare. But, um, you know, I think it, it really is important that, that 
you know, again, at the moment, you know, the money and the security and the freedom, I think are really, are really what comes first. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a place for a job guarantee somewhere uh, for things that need to get done that people don't decide to do themselves. But again, I think that's far down the road. It'll take, you know, again, with both services and a job guarantee is gonna take a huge amount of time and effort to actually set up properly. How do you control these things? How, you, how do you decide? you know, what gets done and who does it. Um, you know, these are big questions, which, I mean, I've read a lot about job guarantee and, and basic services, and I'm still not really feeling I, I have the answers to those things. You know, there's some, you know, again, here with the universal basic services, that's a very specific plan that came out of UCL, but, um, you know, most actually, you know, half of the services that, you know, like food and housing were not universal, all right? They were only for the bottom 20%, which would still mean that, you know, you would still have to do a means test. You would still have to go through those hoops. Um, you know, some people think that there's some, somehow some automatic way to, uh, you know, say do a means test or whatever. But I mean, we've seen the problems with that with universal credit over here, where the computer kind of adjusts what you get, you know, depending on on what it thinks you're earning. Um, and that's that's resulted, you know, I won't go into all the details, but it's it's actually resulted in people with with regular income from jobs having their incomes irregularized all right because it can it can flip between you know you get say 200 pounds that one month and then you get you know 500 pounds the next month it it really you know it, it's really been a disaster and that's why also i would say really a basic income is much better than say something like a negative income tax, which often people will equip, you know, they say, oh, well, they're equivalents or whatever. Um, it isn't, all right? You know, because a negative income tax, if you're having to adjust it all the time, you know, let's just like sort out, we, we can sort out how to do the money, how to do the tax and all the rest of it, you know, separately. Yeah. Um, but, but I really do believe that, you know, giving everybody the same amount of money, each individual regularly, um, is going to have a massive impact on society and whatever level it is again as I say I'm a massive fence sitter on this one I can see both sides of the argument <laughs> you know um, and yeah you know so like as a campaigner I can see you know that it would make sense to talk about it being very high and you know as somebody who's been on welfare and been very poor in my life I can see also that, you know, even a small amount of money would make a big difference. So it really isn't, you know, back to the thing that I said at the beginning, you know, too low, it's not worth it. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. It can, even what a middle-class person would say is too low may not be what somebody else would say is too low. If it's too high, if it's not too expensive, well, I'm sorry, but all the COVID measures, you know, the emergency measures have really blown all of that out of the water and it's never really applied to banks and it's never applied to war, you know, those are never too expensive somehow, you know, so I think, you know, we really have to get out of this idea of that it's either basic income or it's something else. You know, I think it is basic income and then whatever else we decide to do. It sounds like the specific universal basic services plan is maybe not something that's overall going to be benefiting people that much. It would. It would benefit, but you know, I mean... Have well, compared to not doing anything at all, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. There's another term that people use sometimes called universal basic assets. I don't know if you've heard that, but I think it's essentially the same thing. The idea that there are things the government should provide for people, and there's a whole list of them. 
So we are getting towards the end. I think I agree with you in terms of where we start the basic income. I would say, well, whatever's politically expedient and any amount is better than no amount. In terms of where we ultimately end up, you know, I want to find the optimal amount for the economy because I do think that this is the way to get people money and jobs are not the way to get people money. They're extra money that you pay people to get them to do things. If you want to finish up with any final thoughts, we're basically at the end. Go ahead, Barb. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion. And I think it's an important question that we do need to work out in terms of I mean, I think the other thing that we haven't really discussed about is that you kind of mentioned at the end, but the politics of, of the level. I mean, the, the Switzerland got a huge amount of criticism for setting, you know, they didn't actually set their level as high as it was advertised, but somebody speaking about the referendum, there was no, there was no figure in the referendum, all right? But somebody speaking about it just kind of pulled a figure out of his hat and it was huge. I think it was something like 2,500 something, something a month, all right? Swiss francs or whatever. And this was like hugely criticized within the basic income movement. But on the other hand, that inspired a huge amount of young people to get involved who wouldn't normally get involved. So I think, yes, okay, there's the supposedly politically pragmatic thing that maybe you can convince some politicians to do. But then there's also like, what can you get a movement behind? All right. And unless unless the figure, you know, unless the figure is pretty substantial, I don't think it's going to be such a lively movement and certainly a movement that, that really gives hope to young people. And I think that's really what is the real important thing to do right now. Yeah, well, I certainly include the ability for it to turn into a movement under the umbrella of politically expedient, because if you can get a movement, then you can move the politicians. Oh, for sure, yeah. So with that, that is the end of our discussion. Thanks so much for coming on, Barb. And uh, it was great to have Jeff here as well. He had to leave a little bit earlier. Next week's discussion, we're gonna be talking about the gold standard. So. To what extent does it make sense to think about basic income in a gold standard world? Does leaving the gold standard and moving to a fiat currency system, is that part of what makes it possible for us to even be talking about basic income now? So that's next week's discussion. Thanks, everybody. This was great.